Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're always thrilled to welcome you to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Today's program, The Legacy of Reconstruction, is part of Bernard and Irene Schwartz's Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all he does and for bringing enabling us to bring so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank all our board members and chairman's council members in the audience today for all their great work and support, and let's give them all a hand. So the program this morning will last an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session you should have received note cards and pencils if you haven't. Staff will be coming back and forth on the aisles to hand them out. And then they will be collecting your questions and uh, we'll hand them up to our moderator today. No formal book signing, but you can find our, the speaker's books in our museum store um, on the 77th Street side of the building. And we're delighted to welcome these wonderful speakers um, with us. This is really a part two. We did reconstruction with them about a year ago. And this we are going to have, um, I'm just going to show you the order. We're going to have Harold Holzer, Edna Green Medford, Eric Foner, and David Blight with us on stage. This is quite a great crew. So David Blight is the class of 1954 professor of American history at Yale University. He's the director of the Gilder Lamron Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale. And he's the author of many books on the Civil War and Reconstruction eras, including Race and Reunion, winner of eight book awards, notably Bancroft Prize and Abraham Lincoln Prize. Um, let me do this in order. Let's see, Eric is next. Eric will be next to David, okay. So Eric Foner is the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. He has served as president of three major professional organizations, the Organization of American Historians, the American Historical Association, and the Society of American Historians. <clears throat> Did I just, it's, they all sound alike, don't they? <laughs> the prolific author of many books, he is the recipient of Pulitzer, Bancroft, and Lincoln Prizes, and the New York Historical Society's American History Book Prize. Edna Green Medford, professor and former chair of the Department of History at Howard University, <clears throat> specializes in 19th century African-American history, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. A member of many advisory boards, including the Lincoln Forum, the Abraham Lincoln Association, <clears throat> and the Abraham Lincoln Institute, Dr. Medford has won numerous awards for her work, including a special Bicentennial edition of the Order of Lincoln. This sounds like there's a banner that she wears across here. Awarded by the state of Illinois for her work in Lincoln studies. And now to our moderator, Harold Holzer. Harold Holzer is the Jonathan F. Fanton director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. He's the author of many books, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press, winner of the Gilder Lamron. Lincoln Prize and the, the 2016 Goldsmith Book Prize at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal 
by President George Bush, and um, he's written over 50, maybe now 55, authored, co-authored, edited many books on uh, Lincoln and the Civil War era. So before we begin, I'd just like to ask everyone to turn off cell phones, beepers, um, for the whole show. And now, please welcome our wonderful guests. Thank you. Thank you. I should go home and write a book. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> welcome. Thank you all for coming out on a rare, warm winter morning in New York. Um, and I am delighted to be with my friends and colleagues. Uh, there are no three people in the United States who, are, who know more about this subject, have been more insightful about it, have produced more about it, and articulate its lingering issues and controversies uh, for, uh, for the benefit of all of us who <coughs> read and, and watch on C-SPAN and other venues. So um, David, particularly in his book, Race and Reunion, has examined this, the, the post-war culture in America. And uh, Eric has literally written the book, Reconstruction. Edna's wonderful new book, Lincoln and Emancipation, takes a close look at Lincoln's evolution on this issue and where it took the country as long as he lived. Let me start by um, observing uh, something that you all know, which is that we're living in, or maybe living through is a better phrase, uh, an era in which raw emotions are being continually laid bare about the status of Americans, and race relations, refugee status, um, we all know recent examples. Let me tell you about one that occurred some months ago, but may have slipped through the cracks now um, as we focus on current events. Uh, in the summer, Hillary Clinton was appearing in Iowa, defending her choice, interestingly, as Abraham Lincoln as her favorite president. They asked Secretary Clinton, who is your favorite president? She said, I'm sorry, Bill, it's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Um, why, she was asked. She said he was willing to reconcile and forgive. And I don't know what our country might have been like had he not been murdered, but I bet that it might have been a little less rancorous, a little more forgiving and tolerant. Really would have been good if she stopped there. But then she said, <laughs> but instead we had reconstruction. We had the reinstitution of segregation and Jim Crow. We had people in the South feeling totally discouraged and defiant. So I really do believe he could have very well put us on a different path. So within hours, ta Coates blogged in a fury. Clinton, whether she knows it or not, is retelling a racist, though popular version of American history, which held sway in this country until relatively recently, Eric, that Reconstruction was a mistake brought about by vengeful northern radicals, resulting in a savage and corrupt government, which in turn left former Confederates, as Clinton put it, discouraged and defiant. Um, magazines picked up the, uh, the, the, the argument. The New York Magazine blog said, did Hillary Clinton channel Dixie's view of Reconstruction? So, 
as they say in um, the news business, she walked it back. Uh, but it it does linger. And I'm going to start by by asking all three of you. And let's start with with Edna, if we if we can. What is the evolution of what we call historiography on Reconstruction, and why is it still misunderstood at this point? It's a very generic question, but let's start there. I think we're still very much influenced by the Dunning School, the school that came out of Columbia University. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, it's really great that Eric has corrected all of that. But Dunning and his students argued that Reconstruction was a tragic era because black people, ignorant, uneducated, uh, black people dominated Reconstruction politics in the South with the assistance of the carpetbaggers, men and women who had come from the North, and local <clears throat> Republicans, scalawags, as they called it. And as a consequence, there were policies that were put in place that uh, were detrimental to Southern whites. Uh, and so that's why it was a tragic era. And so it did take Eric and other historians coming later to correct that and to indicate that if it was a tragic era, it was tragic because of what had happened to African-Americans or what was not realized, the promise that was realized, uh, that was unfulfilled. And so I think that in a lot of ways, we still operate under that misconception of what Reconstruction is. So as well-educated as Hillary Clinton is, she even was caught up in that uh, alternative fact. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, and, and so we, we try, certainly those of us who are teaching in universities, try to correct that. But I think that students get so much of their history, all of us get so much of our history from film, uh, and we remember Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation I mean, because many of us have looked at that. And we still believe that there's some truth to that. Eric, you start by telling us what, it was, what was the, the state of Reconstruction study when you were a student and then your corrective efforts over the well, years. Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank, thank you for saying that, but I'm not the only one who uh, tried to correct the old mythologies. Uh, you have to go back to W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction. And, and even before that, people like John R. Lynch, who was a veteran of Reconstruction in the early 20th century, was challenging what we call the Dunning School. Um, you know, and I think, as Edna said, there, the problem today is there is a vast gap. It may be bigger than almost any other period of American history between what scholars think about Reconstruction. The old view is no longer alive in universities, in textbooks, in scholarship on, on this era. But there's this gap between that and a kind of a sentiment which, yeah, Hillary Clinton was not, uh, you know, I don't expect politicians to be experts on every aspect of historical interpretation. But uh, she was just, you know, channeling what was is still a sentiment that is out there. Although my feeling is lecturing a lot about Reconstruction. The problem today is not so much the survival of the Dunning School, as we call it, but ignorance altogether. People just don't know anything about Reconstruction. It's overshadowed by the Civil War, uh, you know. It, it and and also, as um, David Blight pointed out in his great book some years ago, I think quoting Howells, right? People. Americans like a tragedy with a happy ending. Reconstruction was a tragedy, although, as Edna said, the tragedy is not that it was attempted, but that it didn't succeed. Um, 
but it doesn't have a happy ending. It's very hard to assimilate Reconstruction into the kind of picture a lot of us want to have of American history, of kind of onward and upward, you know, rights expanding, freedom expanding, and things getting better and better. After Reconstruction, things got worse and worse for a long time. And, um, you know, so people, it, it's hard to do that. But I, I think the main problem now is just lack of knowledge of Reconstruction. Um, so our job and scholars is to try to spread as much information as we can. David, you have to take some responsibility because Hillary, after all, went to Yale Law School. Um, and Before my time. <laughs> but you've written powerfully that um, reunion and reconciliation were more important to those who were shaping opinion in the 60s and 70s than equality, citizenship. So expand on that a little bit as you've, as you've moved the conversation. Well, to pick up on what's already been said, I mean, it, what's at stake with Reconstruction is this kind of master narrative of American history. Uh, we do all, somewhere inside of us, wish we lived in a narrative of progress. Uh, the 19th century especially was supposed to be the century of progress, but it had this hideous, horrible, all-out civil war in the middle of it. Then it had this Reconstruction period, which became chaotic in many ways and incredibly violent in other ways. But what, what's in that Hillary Clinton quote, and I'm just, not just blaming her for this, this is what most people do. They speed right from 1865 into the Jim Crow era and look what we had in the aftermath. Well, we had Jim Crow. Well, yeah, but we had this amazing experiment of Reconstruction where the Constitution was truly rewritten. We live under the second Constitution. We live under the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and all the Reconstruction Acts and the Civil Rights Acts. We live under the Constitution created in Washington more than the one created in Philadelphia. That's a, that's a huge achievement, which is what everyone has said now for a half a century about the Dunning School. But also, Reconstruction involves constitutional flux and chaos. It involves... It's, it's the worst domestic violence, mob violence of American history. We have a hard time incorporating that into broader narratives of what we would like American history to be, and it involves race. For years and years and years, and I'm sure you two have done this, in graduate orals exams with graduate students, you know, you got to give them these big questions, and I always say something like, so... Why is Reconstruction such a difficult period for historians? Why has it been so topsy-turvy in how we interpret it? And generally, the students, they take a few seconds, they take a gulp, and then they say, race. And I say, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they say, well, it's, it's America's first great racial reckoning. The war and emancipation forced the United States to define who black people were going to be as free, as citizens? Uh, would they have rights? Which rights? Uh, who were black people now? Was it, it wasn't a white nation anymore. And it is the first major racial reckoning. And we did some of it very well for the time. And then it failed as well because of a political culture and a, a lack of a political will to sustain it. So it's a, it's a difficult period to fit into a broader narrative of progress and ascension. We, we want our history to always be ascending. And God, no matter what happens to us, we still recycle that. Even this recent election. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, 
Well, let's talk. Sorry. <laughs> I did it. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> let's, talk about, let's talk about a different president yeah, so we, we, can, we can discuss at the Historical Society more, uh, more easily. Mm. Um, sorry. There's, no, it's all right. It's inevitable. <laughs> um, so Lincoln's absence from Reconstruction is one of the great what-ifs. You can go there if you'd like. But let's start with... Um, <coughs> Lincoln's Reconstruction plans as early as 1864 when he vetoes a tough congressional Reconstruction plan, pocket vetoes. And it's sort of interesting because Andrew Johnson has less success in vetoing progressive legislation later. It ultimately leads to his impeachment. But just judging by what he said after Wade Davis and his own plans, his own 1864 plans, where is Lincoln taking the country as the war winds down in 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 '64? It's really debatable. I think. <laughs> right, definitely. Uh, it's you know if you look at just the ten percent plan, then it looks like he's willing to do exactly what Hillary Clinton suggested that he's willing to forgive and forget and bring people back into the nation as quickly uh, as he can. That's part of what the whole. 13th Amendment drama was where he had to get this done before the next Congress comes in when he could have waited. But um, if you look at uh, what he's doing uh, three days before he dies, and he's talking about uh, voting rights for certain segments of the African-American population, it suggests that he's willing to move much more quickly. But if we look at Lincoln long term, if we look at what he had done throughout the war and what he did before he became president, we would have to assume that he was going to follow a very cautious plan. And so he might not have been willing to have black codes implemented, for instance, but he certainly would have been much more conciliatory to the South. I think that's the direction he was going in. That might not have voted well for African Americans, because we know the 14th and 15th Amendments are passed because you've got a president who's so weak, <laughs> and uh, Congress is able to take over. I don't know that Lincoln would have insisted on the 14th and, Amend uh, and 15th Amendment occurring as quickly as they did. Before I ask Eric, Eric and David to weigh in, just... Um, one interesting point about the the speech that Edna was referring to on uh, April 11th, 1865, from a window in the White House, uh, Lincoln talks about limited black voting rights. As you say, it sounds like means testing in a way, the very intelligent and those who have served in the army. But of course, it's the first time any American president has spoken about extending voting rights to people of color. And it is true. I mean... The several sources, including testimony at the Johnson impeachment trial, suggest that John Wilkes Booth was in the audience and did say that's the last speech he'll ever make. Um, I, I'm not sure he said the other thing that's attributed to him. This means Negro equality without mm -hmm. using a more unpleasant word than Negro. But he did say that's the last speech he'll ever make because this means citizenship. So Lincoln... Eric, you've traced well, his evolution. You know, it, 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 my, my view basically is that, uh, well, of course, this is all counterfactual history, right. which we but know. But not in 64. But, but, no, I mean, in terms of what might have happened had right. Lincoln uh, lived. I, I think the, I, I kind of resist the idea that Lincoln had a plan of reconstruction, if by that you mean he'd sort of figured out what he wanted to happen when the war was over. 
during the war, Lincoln's view, plan of Reconstruction was predicated on helping to get these two major objectives. One is defeating the Confederacy, and the other is ending slavery, especially after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but once the war ends, those are not the issues anymore. And it, it's impossible to know what Lincoln would have said or done on the issue of, well, what does the, as David said, what does the end of slavery actually mean in terms of the status of African Americans in American society? Um, Lincoln was a mainstream Republican. Unlike Andrew Johnson, he was really represented the heart of the Republican Party. He had his finger on the pulse of Northern public opinion. And something like the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was passed with virtual unanimous support by the Republicans in Congress, I can't imagine Lincoln vetoing a bill like that. I mean, Lincoln always he vetoed Wade Davis, but that was a kind of at the end of a session, it was a strange thing. Um, I think the principles of the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment, Lincoln would have gone along with them. Now, if you get to the 15th, maybe not, but that's four years later. And, you know, the thing about Reconstruction is it was a totally dynamic situation. The situation was changing radically as time went on. And, um, you know, people who were totally opposed to black suffrage in 1865 endorsed it two years later. Um, and so it's, we don't really, you, you can't freeze Lincoln at the moment he's killed and say that is what Lincoln would have done for the next four years of his presidency. Everything was changing rapidly. And one thing we know about Lincoln is he was an open-minded guy and he had changed and he was willing to change, unlike Andrew Johnson, is, who was totally inflexible and stuck in a mold and would never move away from it. So um, I don't find it difficult to imagine Lincoln and Congress working out a plan of reconstruction, which would have looked very much like the Civil Rights Act and 14th Amendment. What would have been the reaction of the white South to that? Who knows? And then, you know, you can just speculate all you want, but you're moving further and further away from uh, actual history. Well, and Lincoln would also have been reacting to things like the murders and violence on yeah. the ground in the South, the huge riots of 1866 in Memphis and New Orleans, which did radicalize some Republicans. It wasn't just Andrew Johnson's obstruction, mm -hmm. although that really mattered. So Lincoln would have had to react to all these events as well. And some of these Republican congressmen, as you know, were being flooded by letters from the South, from mm -hmm. former soldiers, from Freedmen's Bureau agents, and saying, look, you've got to act. You've got to do something. Lincoln would have been flooded with that too. So he would have evolved. I mean, here we are in counter. But my favorite answer to what if Lincoln lives is, he would have written a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> and everything, everything we say about him would begin there. <laughs> there would be about 25,000 fewer books about <laughs> speculating about exactly. him. He would have written it. He would have written it. And you'd been out of business. No, I know. <laughs> Just kidding. No. But, you, it's but do right. you believe people's memoirs? Uh, <laughs> well, parts of them. Some of them. Parts of some. And Douglas, parts of them. Right. So instead we have the reality of Andrew Johnson. But the, the, the record is filled, well, it's not bulging with, but it includes comments from progressive Republicans that say, you know, Lincoln was a wonderful man, but maybe God's hand is in this because he would have been weak. He would have been too conciliatory, too forgiving. Now we have that rock of um, determination who hates 
the white privileged class in the South, Andrew Johnson. So let's talk reality here. Why was that? Why, why did that not come to pass? Where was his? Where was the tipping point between his anti-wealth position and his racism? And why were they so wrong about him in the beginning? Lincoln's greatest mistake: his vice president. Do you want to start well, out? Sure. Um, well, I guess we have to consider why he chooses him as his vice president. Certainly, and, start and with he's that. doing that, at least in my estimation, because. He's in, in Tennessee. Uh, he's done a great deal to keep Tennessee, that part of Tennessee, part of Tennessee at least, uh, loyal to the Union, even though there's the other half that's not. Uh, in a sense, he's giving um, a gift to that group of Tennesseans for what they have done for the nation. Um, I don't know that at that point he was wrong. I, it's... Certainly, this is an instance of a man who becomes president who's not prepared to be president. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, pause. And Pregnant pause for reaction. Okay. <laughs> and, and so I'm sure Lincoln never expected that he was going to. He never they, expected, even though don't. we know that he had dreams and all the rest. You know, I'm sure that when he chose that person as his vice president, he didn't expect that he would actually get the opportunity to be president. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's even questionable whether he, I mean, still there is no yeah. smoking gun in history that suggests that he affirmatively chose Johnson the way presidents today choose candidates, but two of his secretaries took credit for carrying that message to the, to the convention. And, you know, Lincoln didn't need a northerner on his ticket to balance him anymore. He needed a, uh, a southerner to balance the quintessential northerner. He should have vetted him more. Yeah. <laughs> that, that vetting process. Well, you know, he could, by the way, the vetting was available. If you look at Johnson, is, you know, the only prominent southern senator who stays in the Senate, stays loyal to the Union. But if you read his speeches, they are filled with racial invective. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I'm for the Union. I'm not for the N-word. Mm -hmm. And so, but he that, also said, "I will be the Moses to the colored people of Tennessee, and <laughs> yes. I will lead them into the promised land of freedom." I mean, um, uh, you can find some racist comments in Lincoln's yes. speeches, also, as you're well aware, of course. Um, you know, John, I think Johnson is at the moment the worst president in American history. <laughs> he could be superseded, but um, <laughs> he, he was, as Edna said, he was just not cut out for the job, which is the sort of basic problem to begin with. But, you know, some of the radicals did think Johnson's reputation when Lincoln was killed was of a, you know, he had said over and over again, treason must be made odious, traitors must be punished. People thought he was going to be very vigorous in trying to keep the ex-Confederates out of power. And as Harold said, he had risen to power in Tennessee as a spokesman of the poorer whites of eastern Tennessee, the non-slaveholding class many of whom resented these planters, even though they were deeply racist also. And Johnson tried to keep these old planters out of the reconstruction process at the beginning. Then the question which Harold raised is, well, why did he change his mind very quickly? Soon he's offering pardons to these rich guys and allowing them to get elected to office, even though they haven't been pardoned. And, you know, nobody knows. Johnson didn't re leave a memoir either, <laughs> didn't write letters, didn't keep a diary, didn't confide in people. What was going on in his mind, we don't quite know. My 
supposition based on you know the evidence I've seen is that Johnson was very alarmed by what we would call an upsurge of black activism in the South in 1865. I mean, it was chaotic, as David said, but there were places where black, including in Tennessee, where former slaves were just seizing land for themselves. There were places where they were demonstrating and marching for the right to vote. There were places they were challenging discrimination on streetcars. And um, this kind of, that wasn't what Johnson had in mind. Johnson thought they, yeah, they're free, absolutely, but they should now just go back to work on the plantations and not bother anybody. And, you know, they'll get paid some wages or something, but they're not really part of the body politic. And I think Johnson came to realize or feel that only the planter class could keep blacks under control, so to speak, from his point of view. The poor whites couldn't do that from eastern Tennessee. But if you're going to say, look, you guys have to exert, have to put a racial order in place in the South again, now that slavery's gone, you can't very well say, but you can't hold office, you can't vote, you know. So I, I, really, I feel it was black activism that pushed Johnson away from his hostility to this rich class and instead aligning himself with them, which he had done by the end of 1865 when Congress then meets and many Republicans are pretty alarmed at the kind of things that Johnson has allowed to happen in the South. David, well, before you answer, I mean, the man about whom you're writing a biography, Frederick Douglass, goes to the second inaugural mm-hmm. and, and tells Lincoln afterwards that his address was a sacred effort, but also leaves the reminiscence that he sees Lincoln apparently on the platform, taps Johnson, who is maybe inebriated or has had too much NyQuil or whatever he had for his cold. Toothache. Toothache. He taps him and apparently points Douglas out, and he he sees from Johnson a look, he says, of intense hatred. And at least that's what he reacts. So he knew something that that Lincoln didn't know at that point. Well, that's... Douglas is our only source for that, which is fine. It's a good source. <laughs> but um, yeah, at that point, the fact that, although Douglas is writing that in Later. 1882. So, <laughs> he uh, was putting a spin on a things. A spin. <laughs> right. uh, Johnson hated me already. <laughs> but, but one thing we have to say about Andrew Johnson, he had some fundamental beliefs and values. Mm-hmm. And that was the problem. <laughs> and I mean, one is white supremacy. It's just... It's a rigid, rock-ribbed white supremacy with him. He did not believe, nor did he want black people to have any civil or political rights whatsoever. He, to the extent he had a vision for post-emancipation, it was basically some form of peasantry or serfdom. Mm -hmm. But the second one, which we haven't quite mentioned, is states' rights. Mm -hmm. He is a fundamental states' rightist. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. He was so against secession. Yes, he believed secession was, well, at least political suicide. He was right about that. At least secession was wrong, but other than that, he in no way wanted the power of the federal government expanded. The reason he, he is so hostile to the Freedmen's Bureau and so many other, more vetoes than any previous, all the previous presidents put right, together right. is because he thought this was an egregious overstepping of federal power. And that's fundamental mm-hmm. uh, to, his, to his view of governing. And, right. and, and he's up against now... The Republicans, especially the radical Republicans, have this whole new vision of the government as an engine, and they've been practicing it through the war years. Government is an engine of social change. Government is an engine of economic expansion. Government is is an engine of uh, political and civil change. 
that's where, I mean, the, the, the conflict of Johnson and Congress is over race for sure, but it's also over two fundamentally different visions of the Constitution and of mm -hmm. federal power. Mm -hmm. And that gets him on a road to, to well, impeachment. Uh, let, as, let me just add a quick thing. I, that's, I totally agree with what David said. And despite our low view of Andrew Johnson here, we hear the voice of Andrew Johnson today oh, all over the place. in our politics. And since the civil rights era, we have heard, read Johnson's veto of the Civil Rights Act. It's, you know, it's not exactly the same wording, but it's basically, this is reverse discrimination. Yeah. Congress is now giving rights to black people, which is a, pr a discrimination against whites. Yeah. They're taking, the, the idea that expanding the rights of those who haven't had them is taking something away from white people is Andrew Johnson's mm -hmm. argument. And you hear that. You've heard it since the civil rights era. You've heard it in our presidential campaign in, uh, last year. And states' rights, absolutely. The, no, these are state issues. That, this is the dilemma the Republicans face. Civil rights these, and the right to vote and all these things were traditionally rights governed by the states. The federal government had nothing to do with them before the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And Johnson is upholding that view of the Constitution. Yeah, if, state, if a state wants to give black people the right to vote, they can do it, but that's not the federal government. That's why they had to rewrite the Constitution, to give the federal government power to really you know, protect the rights of all Americans. And Johnson is bitterly opposed to that. And again, you hear that, that voice in, a, in some of our political debates right now. When you have students read uh, the Johnson veto message yeah. of 66, you don't even have to tell them. They say, mm -hmm. well, that's what they say now. Yeah. yeah got it. You got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice work. But, but I, I yeah. don't, I, yeah, I, I agree. But I don't know, though, that it's as complicated as all that when it concerns Johnson. If that's the position Lincoln is taking, I would believe it is about states' rights. It, Johnson was no Lincoln. And I, I think it just, it really does come down to the race issue. Oh, yeah. This is, this man might be willing to see freedom. He's not willing to see equality. No. And it's, it's about that. That's the bottom line. But Johnson, you know, as a member of Congress, he had voted against giving some aid to the starving people of Ireland in the, in the famine. I mean, he didn't think the federal government should do much of anything, you know. So, but race is obviously critical in Reconstruction, that's for sure. Let's talk about another character who's often not in the first few paragraphs of Reconstruction recollection. And I've always been fascinated with his journey, his reverse journey, or maybe up and down journey. And that's William T. Sherman, who agrees to a post-Appomattox surrender that retreats from federal policy on emancipation. Then he, or around the same time, <coughs> agrees that land should be given 40 acres and a mule should be given to free African Americans and then loses interest, in fact, doubles back away from that idea which, was, which he agreed to. Typical journey, or is Sherman an anomaly? Or how do we judge the, his peculiar a strange, odyssey? A strange fellow, as you know. Yeah, well, he, he was had a lot of fellow. idiosyncrasies. Uh, he also used. African-American troops to march through the Carolinas oh, no. Sherman, and demonstrated a, a, a biracial Union Army, not an integrated Union Army, but a biracial like it, Union Army. He didn't like it, but he, he yeah. 
He's he practical. used it. He He's was practical. practical. Sherman had, as you know, lived in the South before the Civil War, and, and he, he understood, it. as yeah. some Northerners didn't, the that this was going to be a gigantic war, and it would not be very easy to <clears> defeat <throat> the Confederacy. There were many people at the beginning who thought, "Oh, one battle, and that will whip them. That'll be it." And he, you know, you read what he said about the march, you know, you've got to whip them, you've got to get into the recesses of their mind and make them fear us and all this kind of thing. Um, Sherman was not a politician. I think, you know, unlike Grant, he didn't quite understand the um, importance of the uh, civilian control of the military, so to speak. Um, But he was pretty deeply racist. I think that's that's, that's clear. But, uh, you know, I don't think he actually had a heck of a lot to say about Reconstruction later on. Wasn't he fighting Indians much of the time in the West? Well, I mean, the 40 acres and the mule thing is in That's in January 1865. Right. It, it, that was important, and obviously it was because these black ministers he met with said, hey, we need land and that. But it was also to get these blacks away from his army. Right. He had thousands right. of black exactly. and Sherman emancipated left slaves following right. his army. No right. army wants that, you know. Sherman left that historic meeting. This is in Savannah. Yeah. It's one of the most extraordinary moments in the Civil War. Sherman and his general staff meet with 20 mm-hmm. uh, black ministers who picked their spokesman, Garrison Frazier, and they have this colloquy with a certain list of formal questions. It's an amazing exchange. But Sherman left that room early. The 40 acres, I mean, we don't know for sure exactly how that got into the field order, but he'd left the room. This was worked out by his staff. I mean, it wasn't like Sherman stood up and said, give him 40 acres and a mule. I mean, that didn't really it's come from Sherman. Know. Nonetheless, it got was called Sherman Land. As it you know. was called Sherman Land for until Andrew Johnson right took it away. Yeah, and that's you know. the important part of it. I, I think more important Field. to me than why Sherman does it is that he does do it. This becomes a field order, and this land is made available to some African Americans, and then it's taken away. Taken away, and because there isn't that land distribution during this period. That in that economic independence never occurs, and that's why Reconstruction mm-hmm. was a failure. But it also is interesting. We've talked about this, Harold. You know, what did Lincoln say about Sherman's order, forty acres and a mule? He didn't say anything. Right. He let it go. He didn't say, "Hey, what a great idea." On the other hand, he didn't, he didn't overturn it. it. No, he just let it happen. And that's Lincoln. You know, he was always willing to see what might happen without taking responsibility. Conduct the experiment, right? You know, okay, let's see what happens with these guys on this land, you know? And so that's that's Lincoln's flexibility, which Johnson, of course, <laughs> lacked. And they still have the war to win. And this yeah. is another means of winning. The, right. The, right. Lincoln's reconstruction ideas are about winning the war. Right. And then he's gone. And of course, the hypocrisy of rescinding the order is evident in earlier American history when white settlers get free land and right. black settlers get free land and then have it taken away mm-hmm. with no rights. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those tragic stories of, mm-hmm. of reconstruction of course the, the the person who's getting an extraordinary amount of renewed attention and renewed focus as a hero of reconstruction is is Ulysses S Grant at least through the decisive giveaways of 1876 talk about Grant's battles against the clan as the clan uh, takes hold um, well, tell us about Grant's journey from a strict military man who believes in civilian oversight and is taking his orders from Lincoln to a man who pursues yeah. racist and organi- organized resistance and 
and has a standing army in the South, an army of occupation. He's for an army of occupation. For a while. Well, for a while. <laughs> At first, yeah. At first. Well, I, it's true. Grant's, I don't know if it's his finest moment. Appomattox is his finest <laughs> moment. Not, not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did all right there. Um, but the decision to go after the Klan, particularly in South Carolina, uh, to mobilize the military, to move American troops back into the South as Ulysses Grant <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is, an, is a major step to set up a system by which uh, the perpetrators of Klan violence would be prosecuted, the famous Ku Klux Klan hearings, which is one of those things about Reconstruction that I suspect 99% of Americans don't know anything about. It's the most amazing set of hearings the United States had ever conducted uh, in seven states with tribunals of congressmen. They, they collected 14 volumes of testimony about Klan violence. This was all done under the Grant administration. And in effect, they did uh, put the Klan out of business, at least in those regions, during the middle of Reconstruction. It's going to revive again in different forms and under different names and under different methods, and it will revive again in the 20th century. Uh, and it may have had another little revival. Who knows? Um, so, yeah. I mean, and Grant did essentially agree with the, the Reconstruction Acts, the right. Reconstruction Plan. Uh, on the other hand, he, he hoped that it would all work and just get it over. Let us have peace was Grant's slogan of the 1868 election. Um, and amazing how early you could even employ that phrase, let us have peace. Uh, I mean, always a good idea, but um, there wasn't peace just yet. In fact, 1868, the 1868 election when Grant is elected is probably the most violent election Americans had ever seen. They'll have a couple more coming in Reconstruction that are just as bad. Yeah. But he gets elected in a moment of tremendous political violence. And so does it not have something to do with the fact that the Republican Party is attempting to maintain its presence in the South? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Klan, of oh. course, is really challenging that oh, by, by going against all of these black men. Killing black who are Absolutely, who are... Kill a black man, you kill his vote. That was exactly. sort of the slogan. Absolutely. So as the leader of the Republican Party, mm -hmm. certainly he would have a reason to do that. Absolutely. Which Cong is one of the reasons Grant? why Lincoln is talking about the franchise right. in 65, right. because you, the Republican Party, as he sees it, can become competitive in the South with black voters. To, to go back to a point that David made before, I mean, the, the, the acts, the laws that Congress passed authorizing Grant to use marshals and troops... Mm -hmm to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, to go after the Klan, the Enforcement Acts of 1870 and 71 were kind of the furthest edge of national power you could go to mm -hmm. in, this, in this period. They made individual crimes, like the murder, federal crimes. Mm -hmm. there, there'd never been that. Even today, there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, you know, um, Congress, I mean, the Supreme Court not long ago, well, some years ago, but in the early part of the century, overturned the Violence Against Women's Act based on Reconstruction decisions saying, no, 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 that's a state problem. Yeah, violence against women is terrible, but it's not a federal problem. There's it's no just, FBI yet. The states have to. Here they're using federal power to go after individual criminals who are assaulting or murdering black people. And uh, there were a lot of people who thought that was too much. You know, in a sense, Grant is trapped because 
northern public sentiment is moving away, as, as Edna said. He's defending the Republican Party, but what's the Republican Party going to do when northern public opinion is no longer so willing to intervene in the South and is no longer willing and is beginning to think the Reconstruction experiment maybe was a mistake? You know, in 1875, when there's all this violence in Mississippi, John R. Lynch, who I mentioned before, who's a congress, a black congressman from Mississippi, goes to Grant and he says, look, if you don't send troops to Mississippi, we're going to lose Mississippi and the Republican Party. And he says, Grant says, yeah, I could send troops and keep Mississippi, but if I do that, I'll lose Ohio. And Ohio's a lot more important to the Republican Party than Mississippi. So in a sense, Grant is trapped by the end of his uh, presidency in that there's no longer public support for the kind of vigorous intervention which would have been required to put down the violence again. That's interesting. That's sort of Grant's LBJ moment in the reverse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Keep the North. Yeah. I'm I'm talking about 64, 65. We passed the Civil Rights Act. We're going to lose the South. He was right. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, just an aside. <laughs> so is Frederick Douglass active as an activist, as a spokesman for black rights during Reconstruction? Maybe a softball question, but I think we should bring him into this story. And, and you mentioned also uh, an African-American congressman. I think 15? 16. 16 members of Congress, members of I mean, color this is the thing. I don't know if you get the flag. You know, we've been talking about national politics, but what's really remarkable about Reconstruction is what's going on at the local level, the state level. It's the first moment, you might almost say, of genuine democracy in American history, where you have these interracial governments, you've got African-American, two on in the, the Senate. On the state levels as well? Yeah, two in the Senate, uh, 16 in the House of Representatives, you have blacks at, at sheriffs and justices of the peace and members of legislatures, and you have a lot of white people also in these governments, obviously. But there, you know, this is actual democracy at work in a society that had been a slave society until a few years earlier. It's an un- unbelievable transition, and it's not surprising it generated a lot of resentment among people who were more devoted to the old order. Douglas and Reconstruction? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and yes. Uh, <laughs> right. Douglas was a radical Republican by any definition. Uh, he believed in an interventionist act of his government. Uh, he, <laughs> he wanted suffrage immediately. He didn't want it limited. Uh, he gets into terrible battles, of course, with the, the leaders of the women's suffrage movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton in particular, because uh, the 15th Amendment ultimately is only for black males. That was a big fight for a while. They will later reconcile, but Douglas moves to Washington in Reconstruction. He moves there permanently in 1874 when his house was burned in Rochester, but he's moved earlier, really, and he, he edited a newspaper in Washington called The New National Era for three years. His sons actually ran it. It ultimately failed uh, after about three years, but The New National Era is a, is a fascinating newspaper that they kept alive as a as a sort of an African-American monitor of Reconstruction issues. It's one of the best sources we have of those years. Uh, he became deeply disappointed in the 1870s. I mean, disappointed is a, a, a tiny word. Uh, <laughs> discouraged, angry, bitter. Uh, he gives a speech in 1875. Now, this is after the Panic of 1873 has hit, Depression has hit. Democrats have taken back control of Congress by 1874. The Republican Party is greatly changing. He's deeply, deeply worried. He gave a 4th of July speech in 75. It's a fascinating speech. 
but in it he says, war brought peace and liberty, war brought rights and freedom to my people, but what will peace among the whites bring? And he spins out this metaphor of peace among the whites, by which he meant, what if Reconstruction ends with some kind of white supremacist reconciliation of the country, which is, by and large, what happened. It's one of those, Douglas has many of these moments of these prescient metaphors or ways of saying what's happening to the country. Uh, he was deeply disappointed by the 1876 affair, except uh, uh, compromise, except that Hayes did become president and give him his first federal appointment <laughs> as the marshal of the District of Columbia. But what's fascinating about Douglas in these years, among other things, is that he's, he's gone from being a complete political outsider, a radical outsider, to being a political insider in the Republican Party, and he will be a kind of insider the rest of his life, and there, he pays a certain price for that. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, he's deeply involved with the Reconstruction. But he has no real power except language right. and the power of words. That's yeah. his problem. He, he, he's an example of how African Americans are defining freedom. It's not just release from slavery, but it's about full equality as well. And so you have men and women like Douglas pushing, pressing for that, even during the war. They're talking about equality. They're talking about full citizenship. And so when they don't get it, they are terribly upset about it, especially since 200,000 black men served the Union Army and Navy during the war, and they thought what they were fighting for was not just the freedom of enslaved people, but for equality as well. And they didn't receive it, or may have received it for a short period of time, and they lost it. And isn't there an irony that, I mean, there are there is a potential for African Americans to be elected in the South when some white voting is restricted and African Americans can register to vote, but in New York, where I presume Douglas still holds residence, there's no chance of his ever standing for office. Right. Well, first of all, blacks in the North are about 1% of the population mm -hmm. at that time. This is way before the Great Migration and that sort of thing. Although there were certain wards, you know, mm -hmm. where there were concentrations. You did get a few blacks elected to office in the North, uh, maybe mostly in Massachusetts, which was the most liberal of these states. But you're right. In fact, Reconstruction is one of the... I've been wanting to have a graduate student, since I'm retiring from teaching, why don't you do this, or you, have a graduate student do a study of what you might call black carpetbaggers in Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. African-Americans who moved to the South, right. putting aside the, you know, what the term carpetbagger came to mean in right. pop... But, you know, it, th this was one of those moments that were more opportunity for black people in the South than in the North. And yeah. a bunch of the blacks who did get elected to office in the South uh, were Northerners who had come down to work with the Freedmen's Bureau or with churches or as teachers or just to get into office. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a, th that migration, not a lot of people, but a lot of the, a lot of them did get into political power. So it's it's interesting. There wasn't a heck of a lot of opportunity, obviously, for ambitious people ambitious in politics in the northern states at this point. Well, Douglas gets, almost every year, he, he gets elected as a delegate to the Republican National right. Convention. He, he would often be a speaker at it. In fact, a typical scene at a Republican convention in Reconstruction and for the rest of Douglas's life 
Douglas would walk in the room, the big white mane of hair, so visible, and the crowd would start shouting, Douglas, Douglas, Douglas. But he never ran for any office. There were people urging him in Reconstruction to move to Mississippi and run for the (laughs) Senate. I mean, Douglas' attitude about that was, hmm. It's not very safe. Yeah, <laughs> but, but he's telling other people to stay put. That's he's telling true. them right. they that's shouldn't. That's true. Well, yeah, that's very controversial. He right. urged people not to go west. And anyway, that's another story. But he did many, many speaking tours in the Deep South, mm-hmm. especially after Reconstruction, more than we ever knew before. Mm-hmm. So we have some interesting audience questions, and I think I'll do a few of them now and hope for more. The first one is directed to you, David. Oh, dear. It says, Professor Blight said there was a lack of public will to fulfill Reconstruction. And our question would like you to elaborate on that a little bit and how Mm. you measure and define public will. How do I know what the public will was? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I meant simply is there, there was a political consensus during the first years of Reconstruction forged in part by the opposition of Andrew Johnson forged in part by the fact that you've got most ex-Confederates out of power and not even voting in the South, um, such that you could get the Reconstruction Acts and the First Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment passed. That's Reconstruction. That's how the Southern states were actually readmitted to the Union. But when the 11 Confederate states are all back in the Union, basically by 1870 to 74, 1772, um, a lot of Northerners said, that's it. What more can we do? Thus far and no farther. We've given black people or black men the right to vote. There's a Civil Rights Act passed. Uh, They're back into the Union. That's it. Thus far and no farther. Let us have done with Reconstruction, which was a famous headline in The Nation or whatever magazine it was in 1870. And after that, the 1870s is a very different time. It's a huge economic depression hits in 1873. Huge numbers of unemployment, especially in the North. Um, the Democrats revive as a party. Uh, did they ever? And they take back control of Congress by 74. The Republican Party is becoming more and Only more... Only the House. They didn't take the Senate. Uh, that's true. They didn't take the Senate yet. The... That's true. That comes much later. Only the House. But even that was no, that's, astonishing. That's important, yeah. Uh, in fact, there were headlines in 74. The Republican Party you know, is wrecked, or headlines like that. So by the 1870s, there's a, a lot of other crises on the minds of Americans. And the Republican Party is now talking about big business and tariffs and, and unemployment and, and not the Southern problem. So the lack of will becomes a transfer of interest, a transfer mm-hmm. of attention from the South and Reconstruction and the race problem, as it's always called, onto other kinds of matters. Um, and in the and end, it's a failure of will to hold mm-hmm. <clears throat> the great achievements of Reconstruction by the mid and late 1870s. There's also, this is quite right, but there's also what you might almost call in a modern sense a kind of propaganda machine oh, yeah, beginning, yeah. Oh, yeah. coming in from the South to the North. After 1868, Mm-hmm. which is a violent and deeply racist election. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 you, you think political discourse is oh. at a low level today. Oh. Oh. Look at the election of 1868, which was completely racist, the Democratic uh, can. After that, 
The Democrats pulled back from that. They began a new campaign. No, we, we accept now. Yeah, they've got their vote. Fine. Um, but Reconstruction is corrupt. It's bad government. You have ignorant people. The, the, what you, they, don't, you, they try to suppress race and say, this is just bad government in the South. And that begins to take a That idea begins to take hold in the North. Um, it's, only, it's the beginning of the Dunning School. The, later, these professors add footnotes to this southern <laughs> propaganda machine. Um, and, and even northerners, you know, as you said, The Nation or New York Tribune yeah. or, you know, strong anti-slavery <laughs> publications by the mid-1870s are saying, you know, it was really a mistake. Um, the, too the, far, too fast. Yeah, they were, the, they were the natural leaders of society and they really should be in charge. And, um, you know, we, the bottom rail can't just be put on top mm -hmm. right away. And look, these white Southerners are saying they respect the, the rights of black people now. So let, let's be finished with this Reconstruction. So, you know, I think it is fair to say that public sentiment in the North really shifts away from Reconstruction uh, during the course of the, 19th, the 1870s. Not all at one moment, but little by little by little, uh, it happens. And there are enormous scandals to contend with in the Grant administration. Scandals. Yeah. And, and right. you, you mentioned the Panic of 1873. I mean, oh, yeah, that right. Which lasts so-called right infrastructure, which creates employment, is now no longer a priority right. or a possibility. Right. And when there's ever a, a, a jobs panic, yeah. the people at the lowest end of the economic ladder get dumped. Yeah. It's yeah. almost a non-racial truth in this country. So now that you've attempted to explain your earlier comment and did a very good job, let me hear... Let, we, we don't often like to go into the 20th century, although I did start with the 21st century, but this is an interesting question. Is there any evidence that you know of that in the reconstruction of Germany and Japan after World War II, America learned something from the reconstruction efforts of 1865 to 1876? No, the answer is no. Reconstruction... No, Reconstruction, by, at that point, as we heard, was considered the That's lowest great. point in America. Nobody was going to go back and say, hey, let's look at what they did in Reconstruction. Reconstruction was considered the lowest point in the whole saga of American history. More interesting might be the fact that when, when the United States occupied Haiti from 1916 mm. to 1936, mm. 20 years of military occupation of Haiti, they did look back at Reconstruction, mm. but what was the lesson they drew from Reconstruction? It was a big mistake. Mm. It proved that black people don't know how to govern themselves, and therefore we're not going to let the Haitians govern themselves because Reconstruction proved they can't do that. So the so-called lesson of Reconstruction was, again, just the failure of interracial democracy, so to speak. There may be something to talk about there, though, about occupation, mm -hmm. uh, military occupation. Uh, I mean, part of this is of necessity, but you think of the occupation of Germany and the occupation of Japan and the Marshall Plan, although I, I don't know the inside history of the Marshall but the people who conceived the Marshall Plan, were, were they reading about Reconstruction? I doubt, and if they I were, I who were they reading? I mean, Claude Bowers. Yeah, I know. Claude, ooh, <laughs> I'm God. sure they weren't. We weren't at that seminar. Right. They just didn't, you know. um, but they, they, major military occupations have occurred primarily in modern history, of sheer necessity. That might be the place. There used to be conferences about this, you know, comparing the occupation I know, I know. and reconstruction with the occupation of Germany, and it always kind of fizzle out. Well, and then it came back again with Iraq. There was well, a right, lot exactly. of analysis right. of that, right. although I don't think um, General Petraeus was reading about reconstruction that much. No. 
Are we ready for another question? Sure. <laughs> Get us back in the 19th century. I'm going to start with Edna on this one because of your recent book on Lincoln and emancipation. Obviously, Eric has, has covered this as well. This is from a high school teacher in our audience. It wasn't until I saw the film Lincoln that I realized how far Abraham Lincoln strayed uh, from his Save the Union philosophy in pushing for the 13th Amendment. Is that accurate? Is the film portrayal oh, accurate? Edna, you st- how far he strayed from Well, the- I think progressed is probably what the questioner mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. Or maybe strayed, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I certainly, I would agree that he put his full weight behind passage of the amendment by 1865, or at least after uh, the summer of 1864. But it doesn't start with him. And I think that that's where the movie goes wrong. This is an abolitionist effort in the Senate, and it's passed in the Senate before it's passed in the House of Representatives. What you saw in the movie was the second time it's going through the House of Representatives. Initially, Lincoln had not supported the constitutional amendment because he believed that this was something for the states to do that this, these were laws that had been enacted by the states, and this is where it should rest, even though he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But we know that that was a military measure. Now, he was concerned about whether or not what was going to happen to those people who had been freed by the proclamation, because there was a possibility that they could be returned to slavery. And at least, though, uh, there was nothing that would present, uh, prevent the South from reinstituting slavery again once the war was over, unless there was a constitutional amendment. But initially, he didn't think that that was a good idea for there to be uh, that national effort that it should be state. I'm just going to jump in here with one. Jump. Because there's one question here that says, do you four people disagree about anything? But I'm going to just, <laughs> around the edges, maybe. Good point. So, eh? yes. We, we, we so disagree gonna... about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> So let me jump in with one with one uh, comment about Lincoln. There, there's a wonderful story uh, that occurs in June 1864 when uh, Lincoln gets a visit from uh, someone who attended the Republican nominating convention. Lincoln had supported a plank for the Union Party platform as, a, as the party was renamed for that election. A plank supporting what they called a constitutional amendment. Nobody called it the 13th then. A constitutional amendment to end slavery everywhere. And the person came back and said, well, when the, per- the advocate presented the plank, he got enormous cheers. And Lincoln stiffened up and said, well, I hope that he mentioned that it was my idea. <laughs> so, you know, he certainly regarded himself as early as June 64 as a father of the 13th Amendment. So I'm just right, but the 13th Amendment, was, as you well know, was introduced in Congress in December 1863 Six, uh, by uh, Henry Wilson. He was denying paternity then. He, That's right, true. he was not... He, he jumped on board and did a lot to get it passed, but it wasn't his idea. At right. this point, the, the movie, which is truncated in time, gives you sort of the impression that this was Lincoln's idea, the 13th Amendment. Actually, it was the Women's National Loyal League. We should give mm-hmm. them credit, the Stantons and Anthonys, yeah. who launched a gigantic petition campaign in the beginning of 1864 to press for this amendment. It's not that Lincoln was against it, but that his priority was state-by-state state emancipation at that moment. 
you know, to get a constitutional amendment passed is not so simple. It hadn't happened for decades. Right. Three, three quarters of the states, and Lincoln insisted the southern states had to be counted, so it was a lot easier to get individual states to abolish slavery. So that's a whole other story. But, you know, my view of the movie is just this. If watching the movie leads a person to read a book about Lincoln, Harold or Edna's book or David or me, especially my book, um, <laughs> they, um, then it will have done something useful there. <laughs> but, you know, apart from the movie, apart, apart from the movie, I, Nothing to say on the movie, and I don't know if this makes us disagree. I, probably not, but it's often lost just what a crisis that 64 election was. The mm -hmm. Republican Party is pummeled for its support of the 13th Amendment, and they begin to back away. They walk it back. Right. You know, Seward all but came out and said, oh, no, we may not enforce this anyway. They, in fact, I always tell my students, the 64 election was the most racist, white supremacist right. election of American history until the next one. Until 68, right. <laughs> but they, they painted Lincoln as, you name it. In, and New right. York was right. the incubator for yeah. some of the most vicious racist attacks Abraham on Lincoln. Africanus and, the Abraham first, Africanus the first, and then it got worse from Miscegenation. There. And they wouldn't let Frederick Douglass go out on, on the stump. Right. They just wouldn't let him go because they're trying to disassociate themselves from the 13th Amendment, which they are responsible for. And yet, Lincoln does get reelected, and it's a huge... I mean, if he doesn't... And he doesn't back off the 13th Amendment. No, he doesn't. They tell him to, and he doesn't. Yeah. The, Henry Raymond, the head of the Republican National Committee, goes down there and says, hey, Lincoln, if you stick with emancipation, you're going to lose the election. Right. You've got to say, oh, well... Well, Greeley we'll said them, it as well. Right, we'll let Both him back in it. with slavery. And Lincoln... Seems to think about it for a little bit, but then he says, no, absolutely not. I and, in, mean, and in August, he thought he was going to lose right. the election. By the way, that is an interesting confluence of things. Greeley comes back from Niagara Falls and says, you've got to give up on, on emancipation. Right. Lincoln writes the blind memorandum. Right. His, he asks his cabinet to sign sight unseen a pledge to cooperate with the inevitably incoming administration of the Dictatorial. Democrats. And a dictatorial. And oh, he, he sees Frederick Douglass at that same moment right. mm -hmm. to talk about invites, spreading the word. Invites, invites Douglass to spread the word about emancipation yeah. while, the, while the time is ripe. And then comes Raymond, the chairman of his own party, the editor of the New York Times, and says, I think Greeley may be right. You have to step back. And that's when he wavers. I think that the, the confluence of all of those things, yeah. and, he, and he writes that strange letter to Raymond almost as a pass to Richmond. If you can find anyone who can produce Jefferson Davis to talk about ending the war with slavery yeah. intact, show me that man and I, and I will talk to him. But then he, 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 he drops it in a couple of days. I think that was the one moment in Lincoln's presidency, yeah. August 30th, 31st, yeah. when he wavers. And then on, of course, September 1st, Atlanta, so he doesn't have to worry about right. it anymore. Right. He got lucky there. He get lucky. Poor McClellan is nominated the day after. He wasn't lucky. He wasn't as lucky. Right. So here's a good question. In our increasingly racialized society, do historians and students of color view Reconstruction differently? Differently from what? From each other, I guess. Oh, I'm assuming. Or from the or from you guys. Do you encounter different perspectives or are all our students reading? phone or blight in Medford and they have no problem. <laughs> they I, I think students, <laughs> I, I think there is a certain, uh, now you 
probably have a lot more students of color than I do, mm-hmm. but I find a, a reflecting the world we're living in today a certain cynicism. Mm-hmm. That is to say, mm-hmm. it's not to say the idea that we've been putting forth that Reconstruction was a kind of noble attempt which then didn't succeed, and so there was a retreat from. I think there's more of a sense among students, oh, racism is just permanent, you know, and therefore nothing really happened and it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think there's a much more cynical view of all efforts to change race in this country today among, not not simply among black students, among students in general who are attuned to this kind of issue. Mm -hmm. I think they see it as a simple answer that it is, that race is at the center of mm-hmm. everything, and so why would you expect anything to be different right. during Reconstruction? Uh, what I've found in my students, though, is that they're very much interested in the accomplishments of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. What are African Americans able to do despite all of the challenges that they're receiving? And so, yes, the economic independence is not realized during this period, but they're forming churches. Families are now being recognized. Marriages are recognized. Uh, they're establishing um, these societies, benevolent societies uh, that they're becoming a part of. Communities are being built. Schools are being built. So there are some very positive things that are going on during Reconstruction. And I think my students are tired of hearing the negative. I remember years ago being on a, my typical, this happened, this happened, this happened, and it was all negative. And one young woman said, stop. If it's that bad, why do I need to be sitting here? You know? And I thought, yeah, she's right. I've got to start talking about the positive things that occurred. And there were lots of positive things that did occur. You were committing microaggression. <laughs> yes, <classroom>. exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I'd only add that, I mean, I don't want to keep agreeing, but <laughs> there is tremendous cynicism among young people right now students, uh, for not, and not without reason. But what I've also found over recent years is that there, there was a tremendous interest in the civil rights era because it has this aura of triumph and positive, good ending, happy, happy ending, or at least, and then in the Obama presidency, for God's sake, you know. So there was, a, there was a, just a deep fascination with that and less with the 19th century, less with slavery. However, We've done something to make slavery and its aftermath interesting again. I don't know. We've done it. I guess the society has done it uh, in, in some ways. But the, the problem is always getting the attention back on, on to subjects that don't have always progressive. And civil rights movement didn't exactly have. I mean, the 1970s is not unlike the 1870s, if you want to get a little instrumental about analogies. Uh, there's a, a loss of will and a retreat from the civil rights movement. And, and in the Reagan era, it got to be a speedy retreat. And uh, who knows what retreat may happen now. So did the second reconstruction fail? No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. But still <laughs> good. Yet. Still good. Still good. Mm-hmm. Here's, Doug, a, well. here's a question on an issue that we may have overlooked. Um, as we know, Lincoln replaced... Uh, Chief Justice Roger Tawney in 1864, who finally died, although most people predicted he would never die, um, (laughs) the author of the Dred Scott decision, uh, replaced him with uh, someone he wasn't terribly fond of, Salmon Chase, someone he knew would advocate for 
federal oversight of black rights, basically, um, we haven't really addressed the role of the Supreme Court in the Reconstruction era. So that's the question at hand. You know, first of all, remember that because of the Dred Scott decision, the reputation of the Supreme Court, as, as certainly as long as Tawney was Chief Justice, had fallen probably to its lowest point in history among Northerners, among Republicans. I mean, during the secession crisis, nobody said, well, let's uh, see if the Supreme Court can handle this. Nobody thought that they had, should have anything to do with it. And Lincoln defied orders from during... A habeas corpus? Yeah, yeah, he defied an order from Tawney toward the beginning of the war, you know, and nobody, today a president really couldn't do that, but um, Lincoln did it. Um, but what happens, the Supreme Court is part of this retreat from Reconstruction that we talked about in the 1870s. I don't want to just go through, you know, Slaughterhouse, Crookshank, Reese, uh, then the Civil Rights Kid. You can give the litany of cases in which Little by little, the Supreme Court whittles away at the civil rights legislation, whittles away at the enforcement legislation, uh, whittles away at the 14th Amendment. And, you know, is, should we blame these nine guys? Should we say, well, they're just reflecting public sentiment? But the Supreme Court also creates public sentiment through its uh, decisions. But I think the, the whole history of the Supreme Court between 1873, Slaughterhouse, and 1900 or so, Williams v. Mississippi, is of one long retreat. It doesn't happen all at once, and a very disreputable part of our the history of jurisprudence in the United States, and of really undermining enforcement of the measures that had been passed uh, during Reconstruction. And the thing that people don't quite realize so much is a lot of that stuff is still good law. Those decisions have not been overturned. The court has moved around them in upholding more recent civil rights legislation. But, you know, a lot of those things are still on the books. And since the Supreme Court goes by, you know, precedent and, you know, established jurisprudence, they're still influencing. Crookshank was cited. No, the civil rights cases, 1883, one of the worst decisions in the whole era, was cited as a precedent by the Supreme Court. Uh, in the 21st century. It's still out there doing mischief. Starry decisive. In fact, yeah, starry decisive. That's it. at the core of this, which is sometimes hard to explain to students today, or maybe to all of us, was this, I mean, by the time you get the, the famous U.S. v. Stanley civil rights cases of 1883, which all but obliterated the equal protection of the 14th Amendment, mm -hmm. all of those justices had been appointed by Lincoln or Grant. They were Republicans. Exactly. They're all Republicans. But they had retreated, we're using that word a lot, but they had retreated into a kind of judicial conservatism in which they had been trained and grown up, and they were very political. Some of these guys actually ran for president while they were on the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. I mean... Or tried to. <laughs> yeah, tried to. They kept trying. We don't at least have that today, so far as we know. But <laughs> anyway, but what they retreated into was states' rights doctrine. Right. That all of this experiment in the use of federal power to protect the rights of people, that's what Cruikshank's about, could, could a murder case, an obvious murder case in Louisiana, be appealed in federal court? And the Supreme Court said, no, that can only be adjudicated at the state level. 
You know who recently called for Cruikshank to be directly overturned? Clarence Thomas. Oh God! In a in a yes in a in an opinion he wrote. Sorry. He knows he knows African he knows African American history. I don't agree with his interpretation of it, but he studies it more than other people on the court. Interestingly, but uh, no, David is right. These decisions uh, sort of try to reinstate the old Federalist system, the yeah. federal system yeah. from before the war. Um, in a very disastrous uh, way. There's a constitutional conservatism of the first half of the 19th century that even the judges who get on the court in the wake of a revolution like the Civil War and Reconstruction could not rid themselves of. And it's, it's what gets us from Slaughterhouse to The one Plessy guy who resisted this, Harlan. of course, Harlan, yeah. was, had come from a slave-owning family in Kentucky. In Kentucky. Yeah. He understood slave... Harlan kept saying, we're not even talking about the 14th Amendment here. We're yeah. talking about the 13th Amendment. Right. We're talking about what it is to be a free person right. in America. If the government, if your rights can be taken away by individual violence, by state action, if you can be degraded in public by being you know, forced into some kind of separate car or refused entry to a business, you're not a free citizen anymore. And that's what we should be talking about. We're talking about the end of slavery here. And the rest of the court just didn't, didn't buy that at all. There's a great letter from Frederick Douglass to Harlan right after the civil rights case. Mm -hmm. He was alone to centers, an eight to one vote. Douglass writes to Harlan and says, you may feel lonely with your brothers on the court, but you are not lonely with my people. And it goes on <laughs> to, well, we, honor, we will honor you forever. And on, mm -hmm. on, 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 on. And, they, and they actually became friendly, quite friendly. In fact, Harlan attended Douglas's funeral. Hmm, interesting. So here's a question that may reflect something we didn't get into in enough uh, detail. Um, we have two questions about Jim Crow. One is how the term originated, what mm -hmm. it refers to. And second, was it uh, a manifestation of reconstruction or reaction to the second reconstruction? I think we have to position it in terms of uh, the iconography of, this, of, the, of the phrase and where it exists in the mm -hmm. history of Reconstruction. Uh, supposedly, and this is up for debate as well, <laughs> supposedly it comes from old minstrel shows. There was, there was mm -hmm. a song about jumping Jim Crow from old minstrel shows. But what it signifies is uh, segregation, racial segregation. Uh, we know that you know, whether the laws are in place or not, certainly this is happening in custom. Uh, interestingly enough, there was no need for that during slavery because you had, for instance, if you're talking about public accommodations, you have uh, enslaved people accompanying their owners on, on, in public accommodations all the time uh, during slavery because one knows one's place when one is enslaved. So... Jim Crow uh, or segregation from the perspective of the Southern white person uh, or the Northern white person, because there is segregation in the North as well uh, in certain instances. Uh, the argument is it's necessary to remind people of where, what their status is in the society. Uh, and of course, it just gets worse from Reconstruction on. And it's, it goes from being a state issue to a national issue when it's sanctioned by the Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson. And that's not overturned until the Brown decision. So that 
practice, those laws are out there uh, shaping the experiences of African Americans for a number of decades. Well, I'd only add that, that it, it is crucial to understand, too, that the evolution of Jim Crow laws, which really started about 1890, at least the late 19th century mm -hmm. versions of it, the first Disfranchisement Act is Mississippi, 1890, and then there's, there's hundreds of segregation laws passed over the next two decades. The historical memory upon which those are built is this version of Reconstruction as a chaotic time when black people got too many rights too fast, society was out of control. And hence, in the South at least, in the Democratic Party, they would portray Jim Crow legislation as reform, as a new, a new social control. It was progressive even. A way of preventing violence. A way of preventing Keep social apart, disorder. Right. And, and uh, Southern progressives, like the people around Woodrow Wilson, were, were diehard segregationists, but they saw it as a reform. And we need, we need to know that, that that mm -hmm. was their vision of reform because it would reestablish a social order. Sorry, that's what they believe. Right, Re reform from their perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No right. African-American no, would no, agree no, no, that that no. was reform. Wilson didn't invite too many African-Americans <laughs> in sure. to poll test it. Indeed. <laughs> or to the White House as Anything. Theodore Roosevelt had. Right. Um, here's a sort of a, a daring question, but we might as well end with something provocative. How much is modern-day felony disenfranchisement a legacy of the post-Reconstruction era? Who wants to tackle a lot. that? Um, a lot. Felon disenfranchisement has a long history. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some states that had that before the Civil War, but before the Civil War, there weren't a lot of felons around, actually. Certainly in the South, slaves were not thrown in jail. That would be kind of beside the point. They're supposed to be out there laboring. Counterproductive. Um, South had virtually no prison system at right. all. Right. Well, there was very little prison system anywhere. It was called uh, slavery. Before the Civil War. Uh, and, um, but there were, so the number, what happens after Reconstruction in the South particularly is that many, many new crimes are redefined as felonies minor theft, or they say stealing a chicken is now a felony. And uh, these are directed mostly against blacks. I mean, this, the, 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 the judicial system is warped to, so that white people are just not prosecuted for these things, and blacks are. And then it's a way of taking away the right to vote, because um, you couldn't, under the 15th Amendment, you couldn't just pass a law saying black people can't vote anymore. That was a, would be a direct violation of the 15th Amendment. So there were all these other ways Felon disenfranchisement was one of them, uh, literacy tests, poll tests, all of them ostensibly non-racial on the face of it, but really directed toward limiting the power uh, of African Americans. So, uh, but really not, you know, the prison system that we live with today is a relatively modern thing. In, in go back, 18, 1960, there were not that many people in federal prisons. It burgeoned starting really with the Johnson administration and then in the 1970s, 80s, and the war on drugs and, um, you know, things like that. Uh, today, there are millions of people who have lost the right to vote because of these laws saying if you're convicted of a felony, you can never vote. It's not just while you're in jail or something, but even if you have served your time and you're out, you have lost the right to vote. Not in every state, but in many states. And it does have roots in the Jim Crow era, although it has burgeoned enormously in the last 30, 40 years. 
Well, and Harold, you called out a daring question, so what the heck? Um, <laughs> if you want to understand the current state, let's just say the last 10 years or so, of the passage of all kinds of voter ID, voter suppression measures by 30-some-odd states controlled by the Republican Party, the best template you have for that is to go back to this era we're discussing, the kinds of subtleties, the kinds of ways around the idea that what you were doing was disfranchising black voters. That is exactly what voter ID and voter suppression laws have been doing in this country for the past decade. And I don't know whether these people read about Reconstruction, but that is their model. And they're doing it in, in effectively better, even, than they did in the late 19th century. There's only one difference. Back in the late 19th century, people were forthright about what they were doing, right? In the, no, in the More so, yeah. Well, no, yeah, in the yeah. Mississippi Constitutional Convention of 1890, yeah, they, they just said, hey, explicit. we're looking for ways to get yeah. the right to vote away from black people, and here's what we're doing. It right, was absolutely right. upfront. Right. Today, it's more through circumlocution and everything. Of course, when it got up to the Supreme Court, Williams v. Mississippi, and there were no blacks voting anymore, the Supreme Court said, well, look, these laws don't say anything about race. Right. We can't go into the minds of the people who wrote the law and figure out what their motive is, even though the motive was right out there in the debates. Supreme Court said, look, as long as it doesn't mention race, not a problem with the 15th Amendment. I've always said that, uh, sorry, daring, right? Go ahead. <laughs> we will know we've had some kind of turn in our political culture when one Republican will stand up and admit what they are doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the interesting thing is... About voting. That's <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the, the interesting thing is that there's been a great deal of conversation in the last couple of weeks about the millions of people who voted illegally. And the reality is, though, there were a significant number of people, apparently, who were denied the opportunity to vote. Millions. Who were, yes, who were legally registered uh, with the same kinds of tactics that were used during the late 19th century. And that's something that we all should be very concerned about. Let me see if I can squeeze one more question in that has historical context yeah, let's not end on that. and currency. <laughs> well, this is also provocative. Well, can you comment? Uh, there are two questions relating to women. And one suggests that we haven't spoken enough, of, aside from the, 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 the feminist um, founding mothers who suggested the 13th Amendment, what role women played in advancing the ideals of a positive reconstruction, and also issues of gender and sexuality and how they relate to the push for racial equality then and now, if at all. So what about the women in, in the movement then? Well, women have always been such an important part of the 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 rights of of all people, uh, certainly you know we talk about the male abolitionists when there were so many women who were right by, by their side and sometimes ahead of them in many instances ahead of them and the same thing is true during Reconstruction as well. There have been some wonderful studies that have been done recently on exactly how women are being impacted by Reconstruction and how they are in turn impacting Reconstruction. So I would, would really um, suggest strongly that you take a look at some of those recent studies of that. It's just In phenomenal fact, work that's being done. Yeah, and as Edna says, add to your reading list books by Stephanie Camp, uh, uh, 
Sarah Edwards, um, Stephanie McCurry. We can tell you more about this later. These are books that have shown that a lot of the reaction, beginning in the Confederacy, but then certainly in Southern laws passed during Reconstruction and beyond, were ways of controlling gender, were ways of controlling the lives of women, keeping women domestic, keeping women at home, keeping women on the plantation, on the farm, and so forth and so on, that there was a certain domestication to, 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 to law during Reconstruction and beyond. And uh, th th there's, a, th says, there's, a, there's a lot of good work out there now that shows that. On the level of, of rights, I mean, it, I mean, of voting rights, uh, it's a huge battle. And the, of course, the struggle for women's suffrage didn't succeed till the early 20th century. But it's also an interesting case of one example of where the right to vote for women did succeed first at the state level. Sometimes mm -hmm, there, yes. are, there are things that happen because of states' rights that mm -hmm. uh, it depends on which side of the battle you're on. Uh, certain states passed women's suffrage, of course, before the federal amendment ever came about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, including New York State. Yeah. Yeah. As, as David mentioned before, the, this was also a period of a bitter dispute between people who were allies before oh, this, yeah. the, the leaders of the women's suffrage movement <clears throat> and the abolitionists, male abolitionists particularly, over whether, quote unquote, you know, black male suffrage should go forward or universal suffrage. And uh, the women's movement itself splits. There are some who say, no, we've got to get the right to vote for black men. That's the crucial now. And others say, no, if, if women are left out now, you're rewriting the Constitution. Stanton said, you know, mm -hmm. it'll take 50 years, mm -hmm. which is what it took exactly from then to the... And she said some like, ugly stuff about... Oh, no, then she turned to <laughs> some racist things about this. Right. You can't enfranchise Sambo while the daughters of, you know, Abigail yeah. Adams and others don't have the right to vote and that kind right. of thing. Uh, but the battle over, you know, the battle over rights is central to Reconstruction. What are the rights of citizens? Who should enjoy those rights? Who should define and protect those rights? That's why, to go very, back to the very first point Harold made, this era is relevant to the moment today. It is not just dead history. The issues of Reconstruction are issues on the front pages of our newspapers right now. Citizenship, rights, federal and state power, terrorism. Those are all Reconstruction Refugees. issues. Hmm? Refugees. Refugees, exactly, all sorts of things. So uh, people need to know more about Reconstruction. The word refugee is in the Freedmen's Bureau name. Right. Yeah. Freedmen's Bureau of Freedmen Refugees, and Refugees Freedmen within and the country. Abandoned land. Well, I'm speaking of ending where we began. I, I feel obliged morally, <laughs> politically, socially to <laughs> give the last word to Hillary Clinton because I began by quoting her gaffe. Um, is she running again? Or No. <laughs> She ran from her first state okay. with the second state. Are you on her mayoral? <laughs> right. I don't think so. um, she wanted to expound, expand and expound on this issue um, after her initial statement. And this is what she said. Um, we might have gotten to a better place under Lincoln's leadership. What we needed after the Civil War was equality, justice, and reconciliation. Instead, we saw the federal government abandon Reconstruction before real change took hold. Too many injustices remain today. Attempts to suppress voting rights go back to racist efforts against Reconstruction, and in fighting for voting rights and equality today, we are continuing a long struggle that still has to be fought and won in our own generation. 
I think we can all agree on that. And we thank you all for okay, participating. Thank you. Harold Holzer, Edna Green Medford, Eric Foner, David Blight, we thank you so much. Is there more to talk about with the I have part three right here. I, I think we can do this again next year. How's that? Thank you all for coming. Thank you.